0: To this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Well, Happy New Year. Nice to see you. I got a new water bottle for Christmas, so that was good. I felt bad. I was occasionally preaching with when I was like athletic bottles, that when you squeeze it. And I was like, feels like I'm going for a run, not preaching. So here we are. Good gift. Well, next week, uh, Pete is going to be with us, and he's going to be sharing uh, a kind of a word that he's carrying for us as a church for the year coming forward. And then after that, we're going to be kicking into our brand new series, looking at the life of David. And so this Sunday, I want to focus back on Jesus to set us up for the year. So if you have a Bible or a phone there, why don't you turn to Philippians 2. We are going to be looking at probably the oldest part of the New Testament. And so if you turn to Philippians 2, I'm going to be reading from verse 1. Amen. Now, it is hard to stress the importance of this passage of Scripture. This little poem, this little song, was certainly the oldest text in the New Testament. And it wasn't written by Paul. He is quoting a song of the early church. And alongside being one of the richest passages of Scripture in the New Testament, it is where different theologians say that this is possibly, this passage of Scripture is where Christology began. Or N.T. Wright says of this passage, the theological emphasis of the hymn is not simply a new view of Jesus. It is a new understanding of God. And so today, we walk on hallowed ground. And so Lord Jesus, we ask right now that you would reveal yourself to us afresh as we move into this new year, Lord. Would you bring the scriptures to us in a brand new way? Amen. So in 1380, in the small town of Kempen in Germany, a young boy called Thomas was born. He grew up to be deeply committed to a life of prayer and at the age of 19, he moved into a monastery in Mount St. Agnes in Zwolle, Holland. He lived a simple priest's life and alongside his chores of cooking, cleaning gardening and prayer he was also given the job of teaching the novices who wanted to move into the priesthood he continued faithfully serving in this monastery throughout his entire life and in 1471 he died still in Zwolle Holland in many ways he lived an unremarkable life and died an unremarkable death and yet after his death, someone collected all of these little pamphlets that he wrote teaching the novices about what it meant to follow Jesus. They were collected together and they were bound into book form. Today we call that book The Imitation of Christ. And it is the second highest selling book in Christendom after only the Bible. Now, Sir Thomas A. Kempis, as we now know him, knew nothing of what his life's work would become. And yet he has shaped the spiritual life of hundreds of thousands of people over the ages. And so when I was reading that, I thought, I wonder if he would feel disappointed. Like he never knew. He never would have known how important and how practical everything he'd written had become. And yet in that book, one of the famous quotes is this. Love to be unknown and considered nothing. Love to be unknown and considered nothing. And so now, at the beginning of January, this time of year, this is where we review, right? We plan, we hope, we reevaluate what we consider important in life, and we set goals, hopefully, taking us to whatever we think is the good life. And the way of the world is constantly screaming to us, higher, bigger, faster, stronger. Grow your brand, grow your following, climb to the top of the mountain. And I wonder if to each of us, the ancient wisdom of Thomas A. Kempis is whispering hope into the chaos of the endless rat race. Love to be unknown and considered nothing. And I think these words of Sir Thomas a. Kempis capture a little of the heart of Philippians 2. But before we dive in, let's, let me just set a little context for the book of Philippians, because it's really important to understanding this complex passage of Scripture. Now, Philippi... Um, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi from prison. Now, Philippi was an interesting town because it was considered Rome in miniature. Due to its prestige in battle, it was bestowed with the same benefits as if it was on Italian soil. It was full of famous retired Roman soldiers. It was uh, full of patriotic nationalism. And it was all boldly declaring, Caesar is Lord. And yet right in the middle of the city, there's this fledgling little church community that is boldly declaring, Jesus is Lord. And Paul is behind bars, and he's trying to think, how do I write to this little fledgling community to help them to live as followers of Jesus amongst all of the tribulation of being in Rome in miniature? And he quotes this song. Jesus being in very nature God. But why? Why is he saying it? We mustn't miss the line just before he quotes the song in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Whatever this is, whatever truth this hymn holds, this big, meaty, theologically rich and complex truth about Christ, somehow, Paul is saying it should directly dictate how we act, how we treat one another. How you treat your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents or your friends or your boss or your co-worker or your employee or even just the people sitting next to you in church today. This hymn isn't just about being impressed by Jesus. This hymn is about us. I like how one theologian puts it and he says Paul is never afraid to use a big theological truth to address a small pastoral issue. This isn't Paul throwing his weight around. This is Paul saying that he has discovered that the life, death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Or to put it another way... In our stream of the church, we're so quick to talk about the cross as a way to life, as in salvation. We've been singing about it this morning. It's so important. But the cross for Paul wasn't just a way to life. The cross was a way to live. Paul is saying, hey... Look at your Savior, look at your Christ on the cross, and that will determine the way that you should have relationships with one another. It's not just about how to get into heaven, it's about the way of heaven here on earth. For Paul to stand in the shadow of the cross was the way, was for him to change the way he approached everything. And so, as another theologian puts it, theology done right should get dirt under our fingernails get dirt under our fingernails as we come to january and we set resolutions and we set hopes and plans and dreams and we think what could we do this year that might push me towards the good life what does an ancient hymn have to say to us this year in 2024 Or to bring it to life in colour. I just want to focus on three words that are so important in this hymn. And they're going to come up in yellow, hopefully. And it's this part. Did not consider equality with God. That is in the original Greek, isotheo. Say that, Theo. Okay, you got that one? The next one is something to be used to his own advantage. That's one word in the ancient Greek. And it's this, harpanion. Can you say that? Harpanion, very good. Rather, he made himself nothing. Again, one word, made himself nothing, and that word is kenosis. Can you say that? Kenosis. Very good. So I want you to picture this. Jesus was, prior to his incarnation, Isa Theo. He was. Equal with God, created, begotten, not created. Jesus was equal with God. I want you to picture him surrounded by thousands upon tens of thousands of angels. Jesus was Theo. but he did not consider Theo. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to harpanion, Now, what does that word mean? Well, that word turns up a few times, and it's translated a few different ways. It means either this, grasped, stolen, or exploited to his own selfish agenda. So Jesus did not consider this equality with God, this being surrounded by thousands upon tens of thousands of angels, something to be grasped, or something to be used to his own selfish agenda, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. Now that word kenosis, is, it's talking about taking, it's talking about emptying yourself. Now, If you are a Christian probably at this point and for theologians throughout the last 2,000 years, this has been causing all sort of Christological questions and the dashboard on the car is like flashing up. What does this mean? How can we understand God? How do we understand God becoming man? And those are all really important questions. And I feel like at this point, words begin to break down a little bit. And when it comes to the incarnation, sometimes what we're looking for is the least wrong model. And so let me give you some models that are absolutely wrong. Jesus is not half God and half human, somehow flitting between the two. Jesus is not mostly God with a little bit of humanity. Jesus is not human with a spark of the divine, whatever that means. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So at this point where Jesus, through kenosis, empties himself, he somehow becomes fully God and fully man for us. And people for the last 2,000 years have died and fought and debated over what that really means. And we could talk about that for this entire year and not get to the bottom of it. But I'm not going to talk about that today. Because I don't think that that's what this passage is talking about. And I want to be true to the passage. This passage is stressing something else. It's talking not about what Jesus emptied himself of but about what Jesus emptied himself into. What did Jesus empty himself into? Jesus, who was and is Isothéo, equal with God. He takes on the form of a servant. Now, we make that word a little bit more vanilla than it is. That word really in the Greek is slave. He takes on the form of a slave. Slave. And this language is a bit foreign to us, but if you were living in Philippi, this would have been far more familiar to you. Because many leaders of the day claimed to be Isa Theo. Caesar Augustus proclaimed that he was Isa Theo. Caesar, the ruler of the known world, was equal with. God the more power he amassed the bigger the army the more places he conquered the more slaves he got the more he became on par with God it was this great movement of upwards mobility and what they would do is they would harpanyon together. These leaders would grasp for power. They would exploit everything for their own selfish agenda, for their own position, their own gain. This wasn't just, and this isn't just true for the leaders of empires. This has been true throughout all of human history. Remember, what do we find out in the very first few pages of the Bible? Adam and Eve given the whole of Eden except for one tree. And yet, what's the great lie that comes to them? Did God really say? And what's the great temptation? To know good from evil and to become like God. Isothéo. The great corruption of humanity is this pursuit to become like God. And all throughout history, we harpanion. We use people. We dehumanize people. We exploit them for our own selfish agenda that we might climb the ladder, that we might somehow become Isa Theo. But Jesus. But Jesus. And we see this in our own lives, don't we? We see this harpanion. Anytime that we look down on someone, anytime that we subtly consider that someone else's purpose might be just to make us feel a little bit more important or a little bit more powerful. I was thinking about this and I was reminded of the old uh, glory days of Spider-Man, you know, as Xander has shown us, Spider-Man is going to be playing a big part of this morning's service. And there's the old one with Tobey Maguire, which I still consider to be the best Spider-Man. Who's with me? Very few people, that's fine. We can debate that after. And um, there's this bit where it comes up. And um, I was trying to get the quote, because it was reminding. And uh, I was reading on IMDB, where you get quotes. And it said this. It said, um, Green Goblin slaps Spider-Man on the head and says this. And so, Bill, could you just come up? We're just going to act this out. No, Joe, 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 Joe. This one. OK, all right, you're Spider-Man. So you come down. So you're sort of down a little bit. And Green Goblin comes along, and he slaps him on the head, and he says this. Really yeah, I've been really wanting to do that for a long time. <laughs> Did you get that on the camera? Let's do that again. Here's, thanks Bill, so good. Here's, here, thank you, yeah, very good, very good. Here's the truth. There are eight million people in this city, and those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of lifting the few exceptional people onto their shoulders. I was making my slides and Thea walked in and looked over my shoulder and I think I've scarred her with that picture of the Green Goblin. Um, But that is Harpanion. That is Isatheo. That is the great corruption put in beautiful words of whenever we move into a position where we believe that other people's purpose is to lift us onto their shoulders. And we all do it. We all do it. And yet Jesus comes along and he had it all. He was Isotheo, but he emptied himself. Kenosis. So what is Kenosis. Kenosis is the opposite of Harpanion. Kenosis is refusing to exploit other people for your own selfish gain. Kenosis is refusing to push your will out into the room that everyone else might have to diminish around you. Kenosis is posturing yourself that everyone else might flourish. Kenosis is being willing to pay the price for the flourishing of others choosing to serve them instead of serving yourself kenosis in its most basic way is the cross and so this is not about complicated christological theology this is about seeing a kenotic god who did not come to be served but to serve and to ourselves strive to live a life that embodies that as well Interestingly, as I said, this is probably a hymn that Paul is quoting. But if you look at the cadence of it, you see all these lines going down. Paul almost definitely added in one line. And that's the line where it says that he became obedient, even death, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Can you see the cadence? It's like three lines, three lines, three lines. Paul breaks the cadence of the poem by putting in this one line. Why? Why? We're well, in an honor and shame culture where the ultimate ambition was honor and the ultimate shame um, and the ultimate um, dishonor was the ultimate thing that you worked against in your pursuit of life. So This is honor shame culture where you strive to be honored and you constantly moved away from shame. The most shameful act devised by humanity was death on a cross. So shameful was the act that we know from the historian Cicero that a Roman citizen would never be subjected, no matter what they did, to death on the cross, except for high treason. So shameful was the act that they believe it was below any Roman citizen unless they challenged the high emperor. And Jesus, who was Isotheo, emptied himself to the most shameful act ever devised by humanity. And actually, if you follow this story, there was a well-known document that caused the honor that someone could go up from slave to senator. And what the church had done is they'd written a song that showed that Jesus went the opposite direction. This isn't about slave to Isotheo. This is about Isotheo to slave. That's the Jesus that we follow. And what blows my mind as I read about this is this is the oldest part of the New Testament. This is written and sung by people who knew Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. They hung out with people who'd hung out with Jesus. They had no New Testament. They had no Gospels. They didn't have any of that written down. And yet what caused them in their fledgling community and 40 people under the threat of death, what was the song that erupted from their hearts and their minds? It was Jesus' kenosis. It was something about how Jesus made them feel. It was something about this God who did not come to be served, but to serve. And this was the song of the early church. What kind of God is this? And we see it all through the life of Jesus. There's this funny moment where uh, two of the disciples get their mum involved. you remember that bit where the mum comes to Jesus and is like, Hey, can my two sons, one sit on... Your one side and one sit on your other side. And I often wonder whether or not the mum just did that or if they got their mum involved. And they were like, oh, mum again. Stop talking to Jesus. But what does Jesus say? His reply is not to talk about his greatness. His reply is to talk about his death. Now Jesus was exalted, but he wasn't first of all exalted onto a throne. He was exalted onto a tree. He was Isotheo, but he became a slave. And through this act of kenosis, God redefines honour and exalts him to the highest place, the name that is above every other name. And this isn't about a funny way to just achieve our selfish ambition, like we can just get to the top of the mountain if we'll do it by going low. That does actually happen, but it's because Jesus and God are looking for people who would embody self sacrificial love. He will entrust you people, influence, and authority if He knows that they won't do it for selfish gain, but they would do it for the benefit and the flourishing of others. N.T. Wright says this, it's going to come up on the screen. The decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience. Obedience to the divine plan of salvation. Yes, all the way to the cross. This decision was a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. His progression through the incarnation to death must be seen, not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. Now, what is N.T. Wright saying? I wonder if the hardest thing for us to realize isn't that Jesus is like God. It's that God is like Jesus. That God, the creator of the universe, the one who flung the stars into the sky, He is like Jesus who was willing to become a slave out of self-sacrificial love. And when we do the same, we aren't moving against the way that things should be. We're stepping back into the great dance at the center of the universe. The most natural expression for us should be people who don't strive for our own selfish ambition but look to the flourishing of others. And as I was studying this, I had this thought coming into my resolutions and thinking back over my resolutions over the last few years. And I had this moment where I realized studying this is at some point, I will have to give account to my life to Jesus. I will look him in the eye and he will ask how I spent my one and precious life. And I wonder if he will be less impressed by the church that I led or the budget that I managed or the people that I oversaw. I wonder if I'll ask, hey... Adam, you spent an awful lot of time with Peter. Did he flourish around you? Hey, you spent an awful lot of time with Bill. Did Bill do better because you were around? Because that is the heart of God. How many of our resolutions is that we are resolved, the people around us? Those who bump into our lives, their lives would be a little bit better because of our kenosis. Because in our relationships, we have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong with resolutions or trying to improve ourselves. All of that stuff's good. Of course, all of that stuff's good. But how much of our resolve is a resolve to bless those around us? Or to put it in Paul's language, if you read his letters, whenever he's faced with a difficult pastoral issue, he almost always says, Look to the cross. That will tell you what to do. Hey, you're having factions? Look to the cross. Hey, you're having arguments? Look to the cross. What does a crucified Christ tell you about how to act in this situation? I love the words of Eugene Peterson, who towards the end of his life said this. I want to be a saint, I just don't want anyone to know. I want to be a saint, I just don't want anyone to know. So maybe we could get the band up. And as I was thinking about how we respond to this, I was thinking about um, two two ways. The first is... um, I was asking Hannah and I was trying to think, you know, this is complicated theology and, you know, she's better at theology than I am. And I was like, can you think of like a good kind of pop reference for kenosis? And she thought for a moment and she said, no. So I think that's helpful. But then she said, because there is nothing in the world that can grasp kenosis, it is a purely Christian idea. There is nothing in the world that could possibly display to us the God who was Isotheo, who took on the form of a slave, sacrificing everything that we might flourish. But then she did give me a really good example of Harpanyom. And I was like, I've got one of those. I've got the green goblin. But she was like, no, I've got a better one. So I promised I'd use it. And we were thinking about that moment in Aladdin. You know, at the end where all the way through Jafar's journey through Aladdin is Harpanyom. It is to try and get all the power of the genie, exploiting everyone along the way. And there's this powerful moment at the end of the movie where he, uh, he sort of rises up, he turns red. Can you remember that bit? He like, turns red and he rises up and he says, the power of the universe in the palm of my hand. And then these shackles appear on his wrists and the genie, and he gets sucked down into his own lamp. And the genie says... The power of the universe in the palm of your hand, living space, remember? And that's the thing with Harpanion. That's the pursuit of Isothea. What God is saying is that's stepping outside of the great dance of the universe. And the pursuit of power always comes with shackles. And so I wonder if the response for some of us is if we're honest when we're coming to this new year, what the Lord might be inviting us into is to get off of the hamster wheel, to get out of the rat race, where we've realized if we're honest that we've got a little bit blinded, that we've become a little bit important in the mirror. And the Lord might be saying, hey, how could you start thinking about a few other people? How could you start posturing yourself Not that you might succeed, but that they might succeed. It's a radical notion, but that's what Paul's saying. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. But actually, as I was thinking through the response, I wonder if there's other people here, and if you're honest, you're just dragging yourself into 2024. You feel beat down, you feel downtrodden. As Bill was saying, you're carrying high anxiety, you're carrying shame, you're struggling. And I wonder if what Jesus is wanting to say to you is remember, this isn't about just our relationships with one another. This is about Jesus' relationship with you. This is about Jesus' relationship with you. Jesus did not consider his own Isotheo, He emptied himself for you. Not the person over there, not some abstract humanity for you. And it's interesting, throughout the whole of scripture, you often see the theme of the heart of a person. And the heart is talked about as like the very fundamental aspect of what a person is. And we don't hear much about Jesus' virtues in the gospel, but there's one time where Jesus talks about his own heart. And he says this, the heart, the very fundamental aspect, the truest distillation of who Jesus is. And he says this, I am gentle and lowly of heart. It's kenosis. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if that's you, if you feel like you're dragging yourself into this year, I feel like Jesus is wanting to come to you, not as Isotheo particularly, wanting to come to you as gentle and lonely, with kindness and love. The very heart of Jesus is to come to you with kindness, posturing himself that you might flourish this year. And so why don't we stand to our feet, The band are going to go into a song. And let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we could sing this hymn over and over again and still not get to the end of it Lord Jesus what type of God are you that you had it all surrounded by thousands upon tens of thousands of angels equal with God and yet you emptied yourself that you came to earth that you were born into a stable Lord Jesus, that you suffered the most shameful act that your creation could imagine, that you might call us home. And so, Lord Jesus, as we go about this year, would you invite us into the great story at the center of the universe? Lord, would you help us to be the people in our relationships who have the same mindset as you? Forgive us for the times, Lord Jesus, that we buy into the world's thinking of what the good life looks like. Forgive us for the times that we dehumanise people, using them that we might climb higher on the mountain, becoming a little bit more powerful and a little bit more like God. Lord Jesus, with the ancient words of Sir Thomas Kempis, speak peace into our hearts and our minds and our souls. That we might dare to love to be unknown and considered nothing if those around us might flourish. And Lord, for those that are carrying anxiety and burden, I thank you that you are gentle and lowly of heart. I thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I thank you that your truest expression to us is love and kindness not judgment and so Jesus as we come into this year we turn our eyes and our hearts and our minds upon you and I pray for this church Lord Jesus that we might become a little bit more like Christ this year set us free of the shackles anoint us with your spirit again Use us, God. Use us to bring hope and healing to your broken world. Amen.